says, I have a good conscience. He, he's not just saying that, that he doesn't feel guilty for anything. He's saying, I trust that I'm on your side. I trust that you're saving me. I trust that you see me as not guilty. I, I entrust my soul, my life, to the one who judges justly. I don't judge myself. I don't accept their verdict of me. They say I'm guilty. I may even feel guilty sometimes, but I trust you. The verdict belongs to you. Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauley, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. Each week I visit with Wes McAdams, minister and author, and together we explore biblical passages and topics. I hope you enjoy this study. Okay, so I'm going to read 1 Peter 3.21 to you. Man, you get to be the guinea pig, Travis, and I get to put you on the spot and say, what do you think this means? <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. And I'm sure you I'm sure you know this passage, um, but it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when I read that verse to you, what do you, what do you think of? What does that mean? What's your one, one big takeaway when you hear that verse? I say that baptism is pretty important. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. And I mean, and I think that there's no arguing with that for sure. Yeah. For sure. Let me, let me ask you this. When you hear the word save, I think that we have a lot of, um, not misunderstanding, uh, but maybe I think that we only tend to think of one aspect when we think of the word salvation. So when you hear the word salvation or save, saved, what do you think of? How would you define that maybe? I think, um, I, I definitely think of like earlier in my Christian life, I would have gone straight to, oh, that means you're going to go to heaven. Salvation yeah. means Jesus is going to take you with him when he comes back okay, or, you yeah. know, or raise you up when, uh, when he comes back. And I think as I've gone on, I realize that salvation is, is here and now, uh-huh. um, just as much as, as any eternal life that we have hoped for, which I do believe we, we have hoped for, but I, I think... Jesus is a he's he's a savior for your day to day life. Yeah, you know, he he redeems moments in in every, every day. I mean, I think again, just that that idea of walking with Jesus. It's like, well, that's not that's not you know we'll, we'll be with him in the yeah. afterlife. Yeah. So we we're, the walking with him parts now. Yeah. The, and that's really that's really interesting. And it, it's interesting that you went to uh, the big fancy word would be the eschatology of it, mm. eschatological salvation. In that the saved in the last day kind of an idea, um, which is good. And that's I, I think that's an important aspect. And then you you kind of have come to also incorporate. Um, the idea of saved now yeah. and that we're saved for a relationship and we're saved for um, the the life that we're living as as followers of Jesus and I think both of those are really good. Um, see, and I would have gone, you know, if I talked about my earlier Christian days, if I had gone, and I think that there's an aspect of this in both of the things that you said, I would have gone to forgiveness. Like, mm. and so if you had said saved. So if I said saved from what, like that—that's a question that I don't think we often stop. It, we just assume the answer to that, right? We just assume, you know, if if somebody says you're saved, well, there's an automatic implication that you're saved from something, right? Um, but what do we infer that a person is saved from, or from from what do we 
from I was trying not to end that in a preposition, but I did it anyway. Uh, from what is a person saved? So, what would you say when you think of salvation? From what is a person being saved? I think from sin and death. Okay, more than that. Okay, good, good. I, and I think that that's that's good, and I think that that's biblical. Uh, but I don't think that's the only type of salvation. And sure. I think maybe that's where we get caught up. And so when, when I read this, baptism now saves you. I think we automatically jump to baptism means I'm forgiven. Right. I'm saved from my sin and I'm saved from uh, the, the death I deserve. Um, and, and I don't know that that's entirely wrong, um, but I think that if we were to take the entire book of First Peter into consideration, I think that we we might look at it and say, well, why would why would the people to whom Peter is writing, why would these first century Christians really be thinking about that in this context? Right. Is that really what he was talking about? Now he does talk a lot about forgiveness and having their sins atoned for, but I, I think that if we were to take the word save and we were to replace it with a synonym that we don't... I think if we, if Christians today think of the word save, then we often have words in our mind that are synonymous, and we would go to, you use the word redeem, Mm -hmm. okay, so redemption, um, and I think we would say forgiveness, uh, we might say uh, sanctification or something like that, but we wouldn't often use what I think is the most obvious synonym, which is rescue. Mm. Right, so like so that. we we tend not to think about being rescued right. when that is exactly what salvation means, and and again we we have this tendency to take a word and we assign to it just theological significance rather than its most obvious secular, you might say, significance and meaning to it. Whereas yeah. the words that that the biblical authors used both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Greek scriptures were were also used in day-to-day life. These weren't just theological words. Sure. They weren't just church words. They were they were attached to theological ideas for sure, but they were also words that were just common words. And we could use the word save in a secular context and nobody would think that we meant eschatologically. They right. wouldn't think that we meant, you know, uh, sal- salvation in a theological sense, they would think that we mean, you know, I need rescuing. You know, we would mm-hmm. talk about a life preserver or something like that. We throw it out to somebody. We say, well, I'm going to save you. If somebody, if if I said I was on a boat and I threw a life preserver and I saved someone, we would aus- automatically know from what were they saved? Drowning, right? They were right. saved from drowning. If I said this police officer saved this woman, well, okay, we might think, well, there was a bad guy involved, you know, so he saved her from the bad guy. He saved her from being hurt, or maybe there was a car accident or something like that. So we would automatically start to say, okay, well, what scenario was being played out from which they needed salvation? Well, now now that, that meaning and the nuance of it is opened up, and it, we say, well, okay, maybe this is broader than simply being forgiven. Yes, forgiveness is an aspect of our salvation, of our rescuing. But I, I think that maybe if we're going to go beyond just seeing salvation in terms of personal, individual sanctification and forgiveness, and begin to see that this is a, an epic story, this is a cosmic story about God rescuing his creation, I think rescue is a good word. I yeah. love that word. I love. 
I love to to look at scripture and say, how is is this word save? What how might my my connotation, how might my understanding of this word be broadened if I replaced it with the word rescue? Now that's not to say save is a bad word; it's a no. good word. But again, when we have just a single limited nuance or connotation to a word. Um, often I think that it, it sort of skews our perspective. So with that in mind, I want to, before we come back to First Peter, I want to just look over at Psalm 7. Um, and, and really, I mean, I could pull out a lot of different psalms um, and, and, and we'd, we'd get the same idea. But I, I was just thinking about this this morning and I thought, okay, well, what if, what if we read a psalm first and then we go back to First Peter and we say, okay, well, how does that, what if something like that is in Peter's mind mm-hmm. as he is talking and encouraging these Christians who, by the way, are suffering persecution, right? Um, and, and then he's encouraging them in this way with this sort of mentality that runs all throughout uh, the scriptures. And and so let me just re- or actually you want to read for us uh, sure so so read maybe like the first five verses of Psalm seven okay O Lord my God and you do I take refuge save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart rending it in pieces with none to deliver O Lord my God if I have done okay, this I, I know I told you verse five but I'm going to interrupt <laughs> you before that. So it's interesting. So you're reading out of the ESV, right? Yep. And so, okay, so we already saw the word save. Um, and again, we're talking Hebrew here, and we're talking Greek in the New Testament, but but regardless. Um, but, but we also, and I think this is important to point out, verse two says, lest like a lion they tear my what? Soul. My soul apart. Now, we need to get into this in the podcast at some point, and we touched on it a little bit in the last episode when we were talking about the dualistic idea of human being, spirit, and body, right. and soul. We'll talk about all that eventually, but but here it's real, and I'm I'm really it's really interesting that the English Standard um, translators went with the word soul, and I'm glad that they did. I, I like consistency, but oftentimes they don't. Um, it it can be. It's translated all kinds of different ways in different verses, uh, but the the Hebrew word is nefesh, and nefesh means exactly w- what's obvious in this in this sentence. Yeah, less like a lion, they tear my soul apart. Well, obviously he's not. The psalmist isn't in any way, shape, or form talking about even. There, there's sort of multiple levels or layers of of what he's saying. So he's not talking about actual lions, right? He's talking right. about pursuers. He's talking about people that are evil and that are trying to hurt him, right? So, so on the one level, he's talking about people, and then he's comparing them to a lion, but he's saying, like a lion would tear my soul apart. That's what these people want to do. So even on the one layer of the literal meaning of what the pursuers want to do and on the metaphorical level of what the lions want to do, Soul doesn't mean disembodied spirit. It doesn't right. mean non-physical, non-material part of a human being. It means my life, my being, myself. You know, the same way, again, like we said last week, I think, um, you know, when we say that there are 200 souls on the ship that went down or there right. are 200 souls on that airplane, uh, we're talking about a life, we're talking about a being or an individual. And so when he's talking about tearing his soul, rending, rending it in pieces with none to deliver, he's very much talking about his 
organic life. He's not talking about some non-material part of him. Um, and, and But that, that also helps us to discern what he means when he says, Oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers. So in the context there, it's easy to understand from what does the psalmist want salvation. Well, it's not from his sins, you know, it's not it's not salvation in a forgiveness sense or a sanctification sense or, you know, redemption as we tend to think of about redemption sense. It's, it's save me from the bad guys, right? It's save me from the people that, that are trying to to hurt me. And then he really gets into, you can pick back up, I guess. I'm, I'm sorry I interrupt you. So read the next uh, couple of verses if you want to. Okay. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Okay, so again, the word soul there, and again, it, it, it's the same thing, pursue my soul and overtake it. So, yeah. And, and again, the, the, the Hebrew word nefesh literally means like my throat, you know, so it's it's like my life, my 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 being, um, and they're, they're pursuing it. And he uses life as a synonym. So let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now, it's interesting the way he, he begins in verse three saying, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let them, let them tear me up like lions, like let them, let them destroy me. If I'm wrong, if I'm the bad guy here, if this is just, if what they're trying to do to me, if what they're accusing me of, um, if the, what they want to do to me to punish me, if they're right and I'm wrong, let it happen because yeah. that's, that's the just thing to happen. But his overall prayer, back to verses one and two, is, is don't let that happen. Save me from these things. Why? Because he believes that he's innocent, right? I mean, right. He, he believes, um, he's confident that that he's in the right, that he's not in the wrong. But he says, "Lord, if I if I am in the wrong, if if they're in the right, then let them let them destroy me." And so then he goes on, you know, talks about, "Arise, O Lord, in your anger; lift up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me! You've appointed a judgment." Um, and then he gets into um, the fact that, like most of the Psalms, you know, if if they're the bad guys and and they've laid these traps for me and they're trying to hurt me unjustly, then let let them fall by their own devices. Let their traps spring on them um, and let them let them suffer for what they're doing. And and you know, if they dig a pit, verse 15, he makes a, a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he's made. And that's a constant idea in the Psalms. And so the idea of God's justice being the people that set a trap, let them fall into it and not the innocent victim. And that, and that's what David is saying. That's what the psalmist is saying is that I'm, I'm innocent here and I need you to vindicate me. And so I trust you to save me. Now, again, that, that I, this isn't a unique psalm, right? I mean, the, this kind of an idea about salvation goes all throughout the Psalms. But right. we have this tendency, I think, to read it, and then we like read into it a quote-unquote spiritualized message, and we say, mm. oh, okay, yeah, well, the psalmist was talking about quote-unquote physical salvation, but we're much more spiritual now, and we don't, we're, we're not worried about that. Well, it's easy for us not to be worried about that because we live 
you and I live in 21st century America. Right. And for the most part, there are no pursuers that are trying to devour our souls. There are no people that are trying to tear us up and hurt us. And so we live very disconnected from that. And so that's not our question. Our question isn't, God, will you save me from the bad guys? Our question is, hey, God, when I'm really old, like when I'm like, you know, 95 and I'm on my deathbed and I'm ready to come and meet you, I want to know I'm forgiven and that I get to go to heaven to be with you. Like, that's our question. That That's right. what we're thinking about when we think about salvation. We're not, we're not thinking about people that are going to stab us. We're not thinking about, you know, being lynched. We're not thinking about being run out of town. Um, we're not thinking about being thrown to the lions. But not only were the people that were reading and singing the psalms um, and the psalmists themselves thinking about actual warfare and actual um, people that were trying to hurt them, you know, David as king, people that were falsely accusing him and people that were, um, you know, trying to overthrow him and these kind of things. Not only were they very literally thinking about those things, but as time went on, God's people sang these songs and they remembered these things and they thought about these things because these were very real and present dangers for them. Yeah. And then when we get into First Peter, well, yeah, that's sort of the context there as well. So we'll go back to First Peter. Um, but but all throughout First Peter, that's exactly the sort of thing that that Peter's talking about. He's talking about, yes, yes, he there is an element of, hey, you've been forgiven and your sins have been atoned for. Um, but when he talks about salvation. I think he's very much still talking in in the same sort of idea that the psalmist is talking about because he's talking about suffering. He's ta- talking about suffering unjustly. Yeah. Um, he's talking about being being persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake, um, suffering for doing what is right and doing what is good. Um, you know, I'm looking at uh, the first part, or I'm actually even the middle part of First Peter three. So he says, "Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution." whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wow. I mean, we don't realize, I think, how challenging those types of instructions that aren't unique to this book. I think about uh, Romans chapter 12 as well, and chapter 13, where the apostles are admonishing the Christians who are beginning to suffer, and we, we know now over the next few decades would suffer immensely at the hands of the Romans. Right. Um, in the beginning, it was the Jews that sort of, you know, persecuted them to some extent, and and to some extent, stirred up the Roman um, powers in various communities a little bit. But eventually, it became people like Nero who would—I mean, Peter's writing this, and Paul wrote Romans, and Nero put both of them to death. Right. Um, and, and the things that they did, like impaling Christians on spikes and dipping them in oil, using their bodies to light the streets in Rome, these are very real things that that they weren't experiencing yet when Peter wrote this book, but that they would experience these things. And instead of Peter telling them, hey, grab your sword, grab your spear, grab your shield, fight these people, um, you're in the right, do, you know, reclaim your rights and your, you know, don't let anybody stomp on you. Right. Instead of that, he says, be peaceful, 
do good, uh, honor the emperor, love people. Um, and, and he even goes on to say, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle ones, but also to the unjust. For this is, and here's, I mean, just an amazing thing. For this is a gracious thing. In other words, this is this is a grace from God. This is a charity from God. This is a gift from God. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I just realized, I think I said earlier that that was chapter three. It's actually chapter two. Mm. Um, but, But that, I think, is the key to this entire to this entire book, but I think it's also the key to understanding salvation in the Psalms and everywhere else. It says this, that Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus said, I take refuge in you. I trust you that I'm gonna do what's right. And even though they put me to death in the body, I will live. You will vindicate me. You will raise me from the dead. So he he entrusted himself to God. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing. When we go back to Psalm 7 and we think about what the psalmist is doing, he's saying, you judge me. You judge me, God. And if I'm guilty, let me be punished. But if I'm innocent, then let them be punished. If I'm innocent, let their traps spring on them. And that's what he means by save me. Save me. He, he doesn't mean save me as in forgive me. That's not to say the psalmist didn't need forgiveness. He did. But he's saying in this instance, I'm not guilty. And and I entrust you to judge me. And if I'm guilty, fine. If I'm innocent, then then I, I trust that you're going to save me, which is exa- exactly what Jesus did. And as we go through First Peter, we have every reason to believe that we are innocent, not in the sense that we haven't done anything wrong, right. but in the but in the sense that we stand before God justified. And, th- and there, I think, is where the overlap between salvation and justification is, that we trust that we are being and will be saved because we are justified in Christ Jesus. But those two things are different ideas. One is I'm justified, and because I'm justified, because I'm innocent and righteous in God's sight, because of what Jesus has done for me, then I trust that he's going to save me from death, from persecution, from whatever. Yeah. Now, that may mean that he saves me in resurrection and not that he saves me now. I very well, like Jesus, might be put to death, but I trust God that God will, he will judge me and he will say, because you're in Jesus, you're innocent, and I raise you from the dead and you're mine. Well, let me ask you this. Because I, I, I really identify with the psalmist with, when David is saying, you know, if I'm if I'm innocent, then please, you know, don't let their traps fall on me. Let them fall on their traps. You right. know, let you know. But if I'm guilty, let them overtake me. 
Yeah. And I, I get that. I, that, that, you know, that's justice. Sure. Right. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, as we understand it, that's, that's very just. And I, I get that. And then I read in first Peter three, uh, 17, which is similar to where you were reading in, in chapter two, right. where he says, it's better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will than for doing evil. Yeah. Um, I, I understand that as a concept, but I think practically that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. And I think about, you know, times and times where I've made the connection of, Oh, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm paying for something that I did wrong. Yeah. 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 And whether that's the reality or not, I've, I make that connection and there's something actually satisfying about that. Yeah. I go, okay, I'll, you know, I'll yeah, take the beating because I, yeah. I deserve it. Right. 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 But I think that in its own way, but maybe even more so when you, when you feel like you're suffering unjustly yeah. produces resentment. Yeah, it can. It sure can. And I and I think I, we're as we as we're kind of building in this this narrative of how Christ is salvation in a larger sense even than than eternity and standing before Him on the last day. How how do you how does Christ redeem that resentment? How how do how do you rise above that? Yeah. Well, and I think that that that's exactly. And I the the psalmist will use words like what we we translate as meek. Yeah. And, and this is exactly what meekness is. Meekness is trusting that I and we're doing a series on Wednesday night about meekness right now and and the way I like to say it is that is that meekness is enduring the present in light of the future. Mm. And so you cannot be meek and trust your current situation to God without faith. And the psalmist when when the psalmist will um will encourage through their own suffering, people to to trust God, even though right now they're enduring something that is unjust. Right. And, and they're saying, right now I'm suffering, but I trust you that this will not always be the way that it is, that, that eventually things will be better. Look at um, like Psalm 37, because this is where we get what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5 about the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm. Um, he says, the psalmist David says in uh, Psalm 37 and verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. And really that word fret goes back to what you were saying, resentment. In fact, the word fret there is about like boiling over. It's like being angry. It's not yeah. just worry. It's just, oh, why is this the way that it is? You know, kind of pulling your hair out, saying, yeah. why, why are they winning and I'm losing? This isn't fair. This isn't right. They're wrong and I'm right, yet I'm the one suffering. And the psalmist says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And then, you know, the again, the, the passage we all know well, because Jesus quotes it, uh, verse 11 of Psalm 37, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And so the psalmist is saying all throughout this psalm, trust God, because right now it looks like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. It looks like the meek are being stomped on. It looks like the meek are chumps and that the the bad guys are the ones that are shrewd and, and, and they're the ones that are winning. And we can look, I mean, God's people have always been able to look at the world and say, man, that sure seems to be the way that it is. If you're nice, You've, I mean, we even say that as a, yeah. as a saying that nice guys finish last, right? Right. And 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 so we we have this 
this mentality that man if you're mean and you're cruel and you're crooked and you you know you kind of bend things your own way you you kind of get ahead you know and we say on the one hand well crime doesn't pay but then we kind of think to ourselves well maybe it kind of does you know and so we we have this way of of looking at the world and and scripture says yeah i i get it 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 does feel that way sometimes but what faith teaches us to do is to say god is just yeah. And it will not always be this way. And that the evil people, the wrongdoers, will be brought down. And we can look even within time, even in this age, and see that every every evil empire that has ever been and has risen up that we can think about, eventually they've come crumbling down. Yeah. And at the moment, in the moment when you're suffering under the boot heel of a horrible, evil, wicked regime you think this is never going to end these guys are going to take over the world and it will last forever and certainly the evil dictator he believes that his empire will last forever he believes he's going to take over the world and that he's going to have a dynasty that will never end and guess what it never works out for the bad guy he always comes crumbling down every single time yeah but but our ultimate picture eschatologically you know we're we're looking at the end and we're saying Ultimately, that's going to be true of all wickedness and all evil in sin and death itself. And every persecutor that is stomping on God's people, that is stomping on the meek, that is stomping on the helpless and the poor, those people will all be brought down and God will rescue those who put their trust in him. If you put your trust in God and you make God your refuge, you, as Jesus did, entrust your soul to the creator while doing good, he will save you. And, and that's the idea, I think, in 1 Peter 3.21. And he even ties it to Noah. And he says, in, in fact, I, I hate the way that that the ESV reads because it, it kind of loses a little bit, I think, of what Peter is saying. He says that the people in Noah's day um, did not obey, that the other people didn't obey. When God's patience, this is verse 20, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely, the ESV says, brought safely through water. Well, in in Greek, it actually says something more like they were saved through water, Hmm. not brought safely through, Yeah, um, brought in the English right here, looks like brought is the verb. The actual verb is saved. They were saved through water. Well, wait a second. How were they saved through water? Wasn't it the ark that saved them? How could it be the water that saved them? Well, what did it save them from? That's the question. The ark saved them from the water, I guess, but the water saved them from the persecution. It saved them from the evil people. Why would why did they have to be saved? Well, Noah lived in a generation where they were incredibly violent, where their thoughts were wicked and violent all of the time, where the the world had been overrun with wickedness and violence. Yeah. And and these people were disobedient and God waited and he waited and he waited and he waited, but eventually God saved those eight people who put their trust in him, who trusted in him. They they entrusted themselves to him who judges justly, and they did good. They yeah. waited, and they did good. And their patience and God's patience eventually bore fruit, and they were saved through the water. The water washed the world clean, and it saved these people. Now, Peter ties this to baptism, and he says, baptism, similarly, 
it is now, now, like present tense, back to your earlier point, it is now saving you. Well, why would he be telling a bunch of persecuted people that are suffering unjustly, that are being hated and despised by their neighbors and their family because they follow Jesus, that you are being saved through water? Well, not saved necessarily just in the sense that you're being forgiven. And I, I, baptism and forgiveness certainly are tied together. But here, I think it's more than that. It's that your salvation has already begun. You're already being separated from and saved from the world. Because why? Because you're appealing to, or some say pledging, a good conscience. Mm. And, I, and I think that when he says good conscience, he says you're appealing to God for a good conscience, or some translations say you're, you're making a pledge of a good conscience towards God. Either way, I think by good conscience, when we read good conscience, we tend to think like a clean conscience, right? Like I don't feel guilty about anything. That may be part of it, but I think, I think there's also confidence there. Yeah. When you go back to the psalmist and you read like what David is saying in Psalm 7, when he says, I have a good conscience, he, he's not just saying that, that he doesn't feel guilty for anything. Right. He's saying, I trust that I'm on your side. I trust that you're saving me. I trust that you see Man, me as not good. guilty. I, I entrust my soul, my life, to the one who judges justly. I don't judge myself. I don't accept their verdict of me. They say I'm guilty. I may even feel guilty sometimes, but I trust you. The verdict belongs to you. I entrust myself to you. And so I think that's exactly what Peter's saying. He's saying, I'm pledging or appealing, whatever the case may be, for a good conscience. I'm putting my confidence in you. And that's exactly what baptism is. Baptism is this act of saying, I surrender. I entrust myself to you as the one who judges justly and your will be done. You will save me. You will you will vindicate me. Even if they bring me down, I am still being saved through the water, just like Noah and his family were being saved through the water. It's all about trusting in him who judges justly while doing good. And back to your first point about this current salvation, right now we're living as people. That's what Peter isn't He's not talking to non-Christians saying, hey, get baptized because baptism now saves you. That's how we tend to use this verse. He's talking to saved people who are being saved, saying, you are being saved through your baptism. You're coming through the water, just like Noah and his family are being saved from the world they lived in through the water. You're being saved from this persecution that you're enduring right now. You're already in the midst of salvation. Your salvation has already begun through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are right now currently being saved. So right now, you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly and do good. Even if you suffer for it, do good. Be peacemakers. Do good right now because you're being saved. So one thing I thought of, this ties in to another study I'm doing right now on the nature of God. Mm. And one thing that really stood out to me in this kind of dissonance between that, that I have, that I noticed in my head that I have between, you know, okay, I don't earn my salvation. I understand that. You know, we're not saved through works. Right. But another part of my head does not believe that. Right. And I, and I'm not, to, not to get political or blame it all on one thing, but I know one thing that I thought of that made me realize like, Oh, that's, it's that's just in my DNA to earn everything. Yeah. 
is that you know the, the free market capitalism com- being competitive and sure. like just this idea of like it's built into our culture sure it's in our dna especially in this country Pull yourself up by your own boot, boot exactly yeah, yeah. it's hard not to approach god with that mentality yeah um and you know 13 years into being a christian it's 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 not getting any easier yeah until I, I mean, it, just by recognizing that though, yeah. it at least became like, okay, well, I see what a, pro- a big problem is, yeah. is constantly approaching God with, you know, I've judged myself. Yeah. You, putting David's words like that really, well, that was eye opening to me. Uh, what you just said, the idea of, I don't, I don't judge myself. Yeah. I may feel guilty, but sure. at the end of the day, he, He's the judge. I, yeah. I I think that's that's really powerful. John and, says something like that in his epistle, and so does Paul. Paul says, I I I'm not judged by you, he says to the Corinthian church, but he says, or any other human court, or even myself. Like yeah. I don't even judge myself because who am I to pass a verdict on me? It's it's God's judgment that matters. And if he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then I trust him, you yeah. know, and I believe that. Not because I haven't done anything wrong, because I certainly have, and not because I've done everything right, because I certainly haven't, but because God has passed a verdict on us in Christ Jesus, and I believe that if I put my trust in him, that he is, and I think that's to your point about, you know, trying to save ourselves. I mean, that in and of itself is such a misnomer. I mean, how can you rescue yourself? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The, the very act of being saved is to some degree, and I, when I say passive, I don't mean that we don't participate in it, because if somebody throws us a life preserver, you obviously have to grab onto it. But it's not, but you're not by grabbing the life preserver, you're not saving yourself. You're not rescuing yourself. Someone is rescuing you. And so the biblical picture is that humanity and all of creation is in desperate need of rescuing. It, yeah. It's in desperate need of redemption. It needs Satan and the forces of evil and the powers of darkness defeated and for us to be delivered like the Israelites. That's why the biblical picture is so important. You think about Israel that is suffering in captivity or in, in uh, well, captivity, yes, in Babylon, or you think about before that in Egypt and you think about Pharaoh ruling over them. There was no way to like, okay, if we're really, really good people, then maybe, you know, Pharaoh will just let us go. Like that's, no, you need a rescuer. You need somebody yeah. to step in. You need a hero. You need somebody to come in who's going to defeat the forces of darkness, who's going to show that he is the real true God and he's going to bring you out of captivity. He's going to deliver you through the water, ironically. So through the water, they're going to be baptized in the sea and in the cloud, and then they're going to come out on the other side, saved people. And it's always been salvation by grace through faith. We trust God to do the saving. We trust God to do the justifying. We trust God to do the forgiving. And when we entrust ourselves to God, then we just commit ourselves to, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace through faith. Now you have good works prepared beforehand for you to do. So now walk in them. And you walk in them not in order to be saved, but because you are saved, because you are saved, and because you trust God to do the saving in the past, in the present, in the future. Trust God to do that. Now you can commit yourself to doing these things because, like you said, now the the resentment is gone. Mm -hmm. And now instead of seeing the suffering that I have to endure 
as punishment or as just or unjust. I don't have to worry about that. In fact, I can look at it and I can perceive it as a gracious thing in the eyes of God. I can consider it a gift and say, you know what? As James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance. And this is going to help me be a better person. This is going to help refine me and shape me because I'm already being saved. I'm, I'm like Israel and I'm halfway through the, the Red Sea and I'm on my way out the other side. And yes, there's a past tense to my salvation. There's a present tense to my salvation. There's a present or future tense to my salvation. But it's God who's doing the rescuing. All I've got to do is trust him and continue to walk in his ways. Now, that's not to say that, that you know, again, that, that once you're saved, you're always saved or something like that. Of course, I can, I can refuse to be saved and I can say, listen, I don't want to walk in. And that's exactly what Peter is warning against. He's saying, listen, you're being saved. So just trust God. Trust God. Trust that what's happening right now doesn't mean he's turned his back on you. Trust that what's happening right now and the persecution that you're enduring is, is, not, is not an indication that he doesn't love you or that you're not forgiven because you are. You're forgiven and he loves you. And this is for, this is a gracious thing in, guys, in God's sight and you are being saved. So just trust him and do good right now in the present because you're already being saved through baptism. I want to thank my church family, the Church of Christ on McDermott Road, and our editor, Travis Pauly, for making this podcast possible. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I also want to invite you to check out Logos Bible Software, who has partnered with us to give our listeners a great discount. Just go to radicallychristian.com slash Logos, L-O-G-O-S. I think you'll love the software and you'll get a great discount by using that link. As always, I love you, God loves you, and I hope you have a wonderful day.